Now that's better. <laughs> this morning I'd like to speak to you from the book of Acts. We'll look in just a few minutes, Lord willing, at Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10. But the book of Acts is a very important book for different reasons. The Bible has 66 books in it, 39 in the Old and 27 in the New. And every book of the Bible, uh, it has an importance to it, has a uniqueness to it. And that's certainly true with the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book of transition. It falls right in between the four Gospels and the church epistles. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you got Acts, and then you got the letters to the different churches and ministers, etc. The book of Acts shows a transition uh, from the standpoint of the Jewish religion. Uh, the disciples moving from that into the gospel dispensation or the Lord's church in the New Testament. Uh, there's been a lot of history books written over time by men, but the book of Acts is God's history book. The book of Acts was written by divine inspiration. It covers a period of time of church history from the time of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ until the time that the apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome. It covers about 40 years of time. So I know everything in the book of Acts when it comes to church history is accurate. I cannot say that for any other history book that's been written by men. Uh, they are beneficial, they're helpful, but again, men wrote them. But this book here was written by Luke, and he was the human writer, uh, but it was written, he wrote it by, again, divine inspiration. So the book of Acts is very important for us. The book of Acts is going to give us a history of the church in about its first 40 years. And whatever we find in those first 40 years that the church was doing, we should be doing today. Whatever we find that the church was doing and how it operated, how it functioned in those first 40 years, is going to tell us how we should operate and function today. The Lord set up his church where it would endure and last until his second coming. Many things obviously have changed in the last 2,000 years, but the Lord established His church where there wouldn't have to be any change. The Lord's church is very simple. As I studied the book of Acts, I look in Acts 2.42, and we're told that the disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking bread, in prayer. There's four things that the disciples continued steadfastly in. When you continue in something, that means you have begun, you've started, and now you continue. So they, continue, they began with the apostles' doctrine, and now they continued. Notice it's steadfastly. It was that important to them to be sure that they were apostolic. So the same should be true for us today. Are we apostolic? By that I simply mean, are we where the apostles were? Do we believe what the apostles believed? Do we believe what the apostles taught? Those disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayers. Now, I think we understand what prayer is about, and we understand somewhat about fellowship and the breaking of bread. Sometimes when you find that expression, it has reference to simply eating a meal, but oftentimes it has reference of a special type of fellowship when the Lord's people got together and observed uh, that second ordinance in the Lord's church was the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. If we're going to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, we have to know what the apostles' doctrine was. 
what they taught. And we don't have any liberty or freedom to add to that or take away from that or to change any of that. Uh, we are to take God's word for what God's word says. So we learn what the Apostles' Doctrine is all about by, of course, studying the New Testament, especially the uh, church epistles and ministerial epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote, again, by divine inspiration. So this morning I want to uh, go to Acts 8, 9, and 10 and look at three individuals and see some similarities and also some contrast in these individuals. And I think it will teach us a lot uh, about the Apostles' Doctrine, not only concerning eternal matters, but also concerning the kingdom and church matters. Now these three men I want to talk about are number one in Acts 8, I want to take a look at the eunuch. Acts 9, I want to take a look at Saul of Tarsus. In Acts 10, I want to take a look at Cornelius. Now, these three men have some things in common, but they have more things that are different than they have in common. From a human perspective, one thing they have in common, they're all men. <laughs> um, but these three men, when we take a look at uh, who they descended from, I think it's very important. We go back and study the flood and take a look at uh, Noah's family. They were the only ones, of course, to be spared and delivered from that old world as God gave instructions to Noah to build the ark. And Noah built the ark, and the ark housed he and his family, which was eight people all together. And the old world and all humanity outside these eight were destroyed in the flood. And in the beginning of creation, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them a commandment. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. You'll find where he gave the same commandment to Noah and his family. Because they're the only ones on this earth after the flood was over. They came out of the ark, just eight people on this earth. That's kind of hard to fathom, isn't it? In a world that's got several billion people, that there was a time when there was only eight people on this earth. And the Lord told them to do the same thing. He says, you are to be fruitful, you're to multiply, and to replenish the earth. I think that's one commandment that man has done pretty good. He has broken a lot of other commandments of God, but this commandment here, he's been pretty successful at it. So the earth was populated, as we have today, as a result of eight people after the flood, when God told them to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and Noah and his wife had three sons. Three sons was Cush, Shem, and Japheth. As we look in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10, we're going to find descendants of these three men. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to find the eunuch. Now, the eunuch uh, was a man of authority. That was another thing these three men do have in common. All three men were men of authority, and we'll see that as we move along. But we find where he was from Ethiopia. Now, the Ethiopia under consideration there was uh, ancient Nubia, and that was south of Egypt. He was a little over 200 miles away from Jerusalem. Now, he's going to travel a long ways to go to Jerusalem, as we will see. Uh, you might ask, how far did you travel this morning? I traveled about a mile and a half. I, I think probably as I look out in the congregation, the person who traveled the furthest this morning, probably Sister Mary Lou, and you're, what, 70 miles, Sister Mary Lou? She travels about 70 miles one way to come to church here every Sunday. But at least we have cars to travel in, correct? Well, the eunuch didn't have a car, didn't have a train, didn't have a plane, didn't have a bus. He had a chariot. And being over 200 miles, we're looking at about 15 to 20 miles per day usually in travel time. So we're looking at about 10 days at least, 10 or 12 days of travel time 
that the eunuch had. Now, the eunuch was a descendant of Cush, okay? A descendant of him. And we're going to find where Saul of Tarsus is a descendant of Shem. And Cornelius was a descendant of Japheth. So we got three men representing the three men of Noah's sons, uh, of course, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later after the flood. Now, we take a look at Acts chapter 8. We find that the eunuch was a man of great authority, the Bible says. He had charge of all the treasury of Kandasi, the queen of Ethiopia. Now, that was a very responsible job. Anytime somebody's handling your money, you, you want to hold them accountable, right? You want to be sure if the bank's got your money on a CD or you've invested in stocks and bonds and stuff, you're very concerned that they handle your money properly, etc. Well, he's got a very, very important job. But for whatever reason, he has traveled over 200 miles to get to Jerusalem in a chariot. And the Bible makes it very clear he came there specifically to worship. He came there to worship. Now, the wicked and evil of this world have no desire to worship God. The unregenerate person could care less about worshiping God. That's one of the things I've tried to get God's people to see from time to time is the distinction between God's people and those who are not God's people, between the elect and the non-elect, between the regenerated and the unregenerated. Um, you're going to see there's ample evidence in the life of the eunuch here that he has been regenerated before he ever meets a preacher by the name of Philip. So he's come to worship. Anybody that's going to travel in a chariot 200 miles to worship is, uh, gives me a pretty good indication they are God's child. Now, 200 miles, just to get in your mind, would be about 20 miles further from here to Pigeon Forge. So if you got in a chariot and you was going to travel that, go from here to Pigeon Forge, tackle another 20 miles when you get there. You probably, when you got there, you probably think, boy, 20 more miles. <laughs> You know, uh, from here to where my son used to live in Florida was 700 miles. We'd drive it one day, and I was not interested in driving 701. When I got through 700, I was ready to stop. I didn't want to drive another mile. It took about 11 hours. I was not interested in traveling 11 hours in one minute. Uh, that 11 hours took care of me. I was well satisfied after 11 hours, a full day, and 700 miles. I was quite satisfied for my journey to end right there. This man has traveled over 200 miles. He's traveled in a chariot, no paved roads, hard, bumpy roads, rocky roads, hot climate, and there are some attendants with him, no question, no doubt about that. And he comes to Jerusalem, and he comes to Jerusalem to worship. Now, he's, he's returning. As he starts back, he's got a copy of the book of Isaiah. He's going to be reading what we would call Isaiah chapter 53. In his day, it was not broken up into chapters. But this is a portion of Isaiah that he's reading from, chapter 53. The book of Isaiah was written 700 plus years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's probably more prophecies of the coming of Christ in Isaiah than any other Old Testament book. Now I can assure you, every single prophecy of Isaiah came to pass to a jot and to a tittle. Every T was crossed, every I was dotted that Isaiah wrote when he spoke about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Isaiah chapter 53 is a summary of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an outline of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just notice how it starts out. It starts out with two questions. Now, a lot of times the Bible, uh, you'll read, read the Bible and you'll read two questions together. And oftentimes the second question will answer the first question. 
So you, the Bible answers a question with a question. So he says, Lord, who hath believed our report? Question. Second question. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, if you can determine who the whom is, W-H-O-M, then you can determine who hath believed our report. The report he's talking about is outlined for us in this 53rd chapter. It's a report about the life, the work, and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a report about his birth, his early days, his life, uh, the reception that he got, and then his represent, the representation of Jesus Christ concerning his vicarious death, and in the end, his triumphal uh, victory over death and the grave. So, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? When the Bible speaks about the arm of the Lord, it's used an expression that symbolizes power. It symbolizes authority. It symbolizes strength. In Isaiah 63, 5, the prophet said, The Lord looked upon mankind to see if there was any to help. He saw none. Now, let that sink in just for a moment. People always talk about how they're helping the Lord, meaning to help the Lord. Now, there's a lot of work that we call the Lord's work we need to be involved in, no question about that. But the Lord doesn't need any help concerning the things He's going to do, okay? That'd be, wouldn't that be a sad Lord to preach that had to have help from men? He said, I looked to see if there was any help, and there was none. Therefore, based on that fact, he says, my own arm had brought salvation unto me. You find that also in Isaiah chapter 59. It's there recorded for us two times. The arm of the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament in particular, the arm of the Lord is mentioned to us to teach us the power, the strength, the authority of Almighty God. So he says here, Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now the Lord Jesus Christ himself was the arm of God. It extended all the way down from heaven. He's speaking about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? says, he shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Here's expression showing his humble beginnings. As Christ was born of a virgin Mary, married to Joseph, a very poor family. He was uh, born in Bethlehem. He was raised in the city of Nazareth, which was looked down upon and despised by most people in that particular day. But he shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, without form, without comeliness. There's no beauty about him that we should desire him. He's talking about the Lord in his humanity right here. Then he says, for he was despised and rejected of men. Now we're talking about his life and his ministry. For three and a half years, the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life in which he was despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Does that line up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Go read those four letters, those four books. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see if that expression, those expressions don't line up perfectly with the life that you read about in those four books. It will line up perfectly. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I know something about sorrow. I've had some sorrow in my life. I'm sure everybody here this morning has experienced some type of sorrow sometime or another in your lifetime, whether you're young, whether you be old. But here's a man of sorrows. Here's a, a sorrow characterized this man's life. He, he had a day of sorrow basically every day that he lived here. He was despised. He was rejected. He was ridiculed. He was blasphemed, etc. Not to mention what he suffered when he got close to the cross when he went through the mock trial. And then when they beat on him and they buffeted him and they whipped him, 
Uh, when they put the crown of thorns upon his head, etc., etc., he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Not just he, had, he knew a little bit about grief, he was acquainted with grief. That means his life was characterized by grief. And then after that, he starts talking about the representation of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his vicarious death. Now, before we say something about that, let's go back to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, we find where a man by the name of Philip is going to be sent to where the eunuch is. Now, Philip and the eunuch have never met each other, but God sends Philip. Now, Philip had already carried the gospel into Samaria. If you remember in Acts 1.8, the apostles were speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ before his ascension, and the Lord told them that they would tarry at Jerusalem until they received power from on high, and after that you shall be witnesses unto me, first of all in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, and then in the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, as you start tracing the gospel in the book of Acts, you'll find exactly how it fell in place. Acts chapter 2, the gospel there on the day of Pentecost, that's in Jerusalem. We get over to Acts chapter 8, we got the gospel in Samaria. And the time we get to Acts chapter 10, we're going to have the gospel going to the uttermost parts of the world from the standpoint it has now reached the Gentile people. So the Lord sends Philip to where the eunuch is. He's returning, he's reading from the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. This tells me that he must have got so stirred up in his worship service at Jerusalem that he just wanted to continue on. <laughs> he, he was still in tune with the Lord. He was wanting to know more about the Lord. Now, how he wound up in Isaiah chapter 53, I'm not sure. Perhaps that's what the teacher in the synagogue in Jerusalem had taught that day. Maybe he read from Isaiah 53, and now he's following up on that, which I try to encourage you to do. Uh, really, every Sunday, when you, sometime before you go to bed that night, it'd be great to follow up on what you've heard here this morning or what you hear each day. Do a follow-up session. So he's in Isaiah chapter 53, and he's come down to verses 7 and 8. Now, Philip, when he gets there, he sees a eunuch in his chariot, and he's going to ask him a question. He says, understand this what thou readest. And he replied by saying, well, how can I? except some man guide me. What we learn about this eunuch at this point that should impress you, that should tell you that he's a born-again child of God. The wicked and evil of this world, the unregenerate this world, have no desire to worship God. They wouldn't walk across the street, much less ride a chariot for 200 miles. They care nothing about godly conversation. They care nothing about spiritual conversation, biblical conversation, etc., etc. It's kind of like in John chapter 6. When the Lord Jesus Christ was doing the miracles, when he was feeding like the 5,000 men and women besides children, and the men besides women and children, and he did it with uh, a few loaves and a few fishes, the crowds abounded. The multitudes came. But when the Lord started preaching his word, the crowd started disappearing. They started leaving. They found the nearest exit. So, we find that the unregenerate has no desire whatsoever to hear the word of God, talk about God whatsoever. His mind is one track that's on the things of this world and this world only. The eunuch's been to Jerusalem to worship, to worship God. And now it's not like he was made to go to Jerusalem. He thought, well, I got that out of the way, and now we'll talk about everything else in the world. No, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53 about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's in particular interested in verses 7 and 8. When you go back and read Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, 
You're going to find he's talking about the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his vicarious death. The word vicarious means in the room instead of. Uh, it's a death of representation. You'll find where he's described as a lamb led to the slaughter. As a lamb, uh, you know, before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah said he's just like a lamb that goes before the shears and the shears shear him and he doesn't say anything. He's led as a lamb to the slaughter. Now those lambs that go to the slaughter may not know where they're going, but the Lord Jesus Christ did. John 1, 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ knew where he was heading. The Lord Jesus Christ understood it perfectly and fully well. That's what he's reading there in Isaiah chapter 53. He goes on to say, He should be cut off out of the land of the living. And by his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgression. You look at the word our, O-U-R, in these verses, I'm talking about verses 4 through 9, actually. But he's reading verses 7 and 8, but look at verses 4 through 9. That takes up the next section, you might say. And you're going to find that word our is used six times. So what, what's the significance of that? If he was bruised for our iniquities, that means he was bruised in our place. If the iniquity of us all was laid on him, that means he took our place. He took the place of his children. He took the place that I deserved to have my iniquities laid on me. You deserve to have your iniquities laid on you. You deserve to have your transgressions charged to you. But thank God that's not going to happen because the Lord Jesus Christ had our iniquities laid on him. He was bruised. For our iniquities. That word our is mentioned six times. Then he says, and by his stripes, we, another word for our, we are healed. The Lord's people have been healed because through the stripes of the Lord Jesus Christ, through his sufferings, through his death, this burly resurrection, the Lord's people have been delivered from the law of sin and death, been delivered from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. The presence of sin. I, that's what I'm looking forward to one day, to be delivered from the presence of sin. I can't get away from it. It's around me every day. <laughs> you see it everywhere, do you not? But I can tell you this, the Lord's already delivered you from the penalty of sin. One day you will be delivered from the presence of sin. Thank God for the power of sin. So that's where he's reading. Throughout history, the shedding of blood has been an important topic in the Bible. In the very beginning, when Adam and Eve transgressed God's law, what did they do? They tried to solve the, the situation by their own hands, their own works, didn't they? You ought to be able to see this as being the futility of the work system. What did they do? They got fig leaves and sewed them together, tried to cover their nakedness. How long do you think that lasted till the fig leaves began to shrivel up? So what did the Lord do? The Lord clothed them with the skins of animals. So what did that mean? It means blood was shed and death took place. That's pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ, where blood had to be shed and death had to take place, you see. And then you got Adam and Eve's first two children, Cain and Abel. And they bring an offering to the Lord. What did Abel bring? He brought the firstlings of the flock. That meant a sacrifice, an offering, a death, shedding of blood. 
What did Cain bring? He brought the fruit of his hands, the fruit of his labors, the work of the field. Again, the work system. God had respect to Abel and his offering. He had non-respect to, to Cain and his offering. Notice the respect or non-respect was to the person and then to the offering. When Israel was brought out of the land of Egypt, what was the what happened? What happened? What was the tenth and final plague? It was the death of the firstborn. What took place? The death of the firstborn. Why the blood of a, of a lamb had to be shed, and the blood had to be on the side posts and the lentils, you see. And when God passed through at midnight, he passed over. When Abraham took Isaac up that mountain in obedience to the command of God, take thy son, thy only son Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. He takes him on top of Mount Moriah. When he's about to plunge a knife in his son Isaac, was bound upon the altar. God provided a ram caught in the thicket by its horns behind him, and the voice stayed the hand of Abraham, and the ram took the place of Isaac. And then the entire Levitical priesthood was based on that. There was a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice, where a lamb was slain in the morning, a lamb was slain in the evening, over years and years and years and years, and it never did put away sin because the law demanded perfection, and there was no perfection in that. It was always pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what the eunuch is reading about in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. How can I accept some man guide me? Here's the purpose of the gospel ministry. It's to guide God's people. <laughs> to guide God's people. So Philip joins himself to the chariot. I, I love the language of the Bible. Uh, you know, it, it, the, way, the way it's written. And he joined himself to the chariot. Well, <laughs> it was the man in the chariot that was most important. He joins himself to the chariot and beginning at the same place. And there's a lesson in this. You know, sometimes somebody wants to know what we believe and one thing and another, and we'll jump all over the entire Bible. And, and we'll run straight to Romans 8, straight to Ephesians 1, which is nothing wrong with all that, of course. But it's just best to start with the question they have. It's best, best to start right there in that place. And that's what he did. He began the same place, Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. It says he preached Christ. Now, see, I don't have to guess about Isaiah 53, who it's talking about. The Bible tells me plainly here in Acts chapter 8. It tells me plainly. He preached Christ. And then, after he preached Christ to him, as they traveled along... They came with some water. Now, they're in a desert. Just, it's kind of interesting. There had to be enough water in a certain place there where they were traveling that where the eunuch said, well, here's water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And he said, if thou believest all thine heart, thou mayest. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Belief is an evidence of grace. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. He's reading, still interested in God's Word, coming back reading Isaiah chapter 53, and now he wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. So I'm positive that uh, Philip preached baptism to him in the discourse where he preached concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is all about. It's about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior, you see. Now let's move into chapter 9 just for a moment. Because now we have a descendant of Shem. Now you find where eunuch... The eunuch has traveled over 200 miles to Jerusalem. Now you're going to find where Saul of Tarsus is going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to a city called Damascus. Now he's about a two-day journey from Damascus. Excuse me. Uh, is, uh, no, I'm, I'm wrong. It's more than two days. Uh, he's about a 10-day journey uh, from Damascus. And as he gets near to Damascus... 
You know, something happens to Saul of Tarsus that he was not expecting. Now, you start reading about Saul of Tarsus. Of course, you know Saul of Tarsus, his name is later changed to Paul the Apostle, which is about the same man, but right here, he's Saul of Tarsus. And you start reading about him, here's what we read. We read where he was a blasphemer. We believe, uh, read where he was a persecutor. We read where he would drag men and women from where he found them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail. Uh, we find he had letters of authority from the priest and high priest to go to Damascus and wherever he might find people that were worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and following him, he had the authority, the highest authority he could get to get them and bring them back. We find where he gave consent to this death of Stephen. I find where uh, Saul, in Acts chapter 26, he says that uh, uh, when, there, when death came about, uh, that he gave his support of it, so to speak. There's no evidence where Saul ever physically himself took the life of a person, but he condoned it and he supported it. This is the kind of man we're talking about. But there's an interesting verse over here in 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.16. In 1 Peter 1, excuse me, 1 Timothy 1.16, the apostles talking a little bit about this, but he said, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. He says, and how that uh, in me first, the Lord Jesus Christ showed all long suffering for a pattern unto them who would later believe. He's telling Timothy right here, he's a pattern of how God deals with his children. So let's see what the pattern is here in Acts chapter 9. Now notice in Acts chapter 8, we are not given any details of the eunuch's experience of grace. But the evidence is overwhelming he's had one. If he hadn't had an experience of grace, he wouldn't have traveled 200 miles in a chariot to worship God in Jerusalem. He wouldn't be studying Isaiah 53 on the way back. He wouldn't be telling uh, Philip, uh, how can I say some man guide me? He wanted guidance. Tell me, is he talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? When he got through, Philip made it very clear he was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. But the Lord's going to give us some details of the experience of grace that Saul of Tarsus went through. And it's a pattern. So just before he gets to Damascus, we find where he was struck down in the dust of the earth. At noontime, the Bible says that a light shined around about him. I want you to notice the expression roundabout. Because there was other people with Saul of Tarsus. But the light didn't shine around about all of them. It shined around about one man, Saul. Light shined about him. His experience is related three times in the book of Acts. Next time, Acts chapter 22. And when Paul talks about it there, he says there was a great light. He adds the word great to it. That shined round about him. And in Acts chapter 26, there was a light, he says, brighter than the noonday sun that shined round about him. All three times, the light shined around him personally, individually, one person, not everybody. Went from light, great light, Light greater than the noonday sun. You tell me something brighter than the noonday sun. Today at 12 o'clock, when you walk out of here, maybe 1210, when you walk out of here and you look up at the sun, you cannot stare at the sun without doing irreparable damage to your eyes. So don't do that. You, you already know how bright the noonday sun is. He said the light was brighter than that. The Bible tells us those men along with Saul... They saw the light, but they didn't see the Lord. 
The Bible tells us they heard a voice, but they saw no man. See, the Lord and Saul is going to have a conversation here. They're going to have a meeting that Saul knew nothing about. They're going to have a meeting that Saul did not prearrange. Saul did not have on his schedule. He knew nothing about this meeting going to take place, but the Lord did. And the Lord struck him down. And the Lord spoke first. The Lord always first. And the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul had never physically attacked the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is telling him, you've been persecuting me because you've been persecuting my children. You've been persecuting me because you've been beating my children. And you've been, the word hailing is used in the Bible, it means to drag. You've been dragging them around and dragging them into prison. Even consenting unto their death. Saul, Saul, spoke his name twice. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? How did Saul respond? He said, who art thou, Lord? <laughs> the change has taken place. Was Saul seeking the Lord? No, he wasn't. Did Saul know he had a meeting with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? No, he didn't. Who spoke first, Saul or the Lord? It's like when you read about Jacob's experience. He said, God found Jacob in a desert land in a waste howling wilderness. Well, this is Saul of Tarsus' waste howling wilderness right here on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by that light. For three days, he could not see with natural eyesight. But God gave him some greater eyesight. God gave him some spiritual eyes and spiritual eyesight that he had from this moment forward. For three days, those men who saw the light but did not see the Lord, those men who heard the sound but didn't, know, didn't understand what was going on, the conversation, those three men had to lead him. When he left Jerusalem, I don't know what kind of beast he was riding on. I, I'm just going to imagine it was some great horse or something. And he was a big man. He was developing a big reputation. He was the next great star among the Jewish people. He was making a name for himself. He grew up at the feet of Gamal, the most famous Jewish teacher there was in that particular day. He was educated by him. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Concerning the law, according to his own testimony, he was blameless. Oh, he had, he had a resume that was out of sight. You can read about it over here in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. He had a resume way out of sight. But he was willing to give all that up after this experience on the Damascus Road to have a close walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not the big man anymore. You know, the word Saul means dedicated one, and he was dedicated. He, when you start reading Acts chapter uh, 9, verse 1, he says he was breathing out slaughterings and threatenings against God's people. But now he's just a little humble lamb being led by those that was with him onto the city of Damascus. What an experience. What an experience of grace. Remember, this is a pattern now. Ever how God dealt with Saul of Tarsus, how he deals with each and every single person in his family. That's how he dealt with me. That's how he dealt with you. When you weren't looking for him, he saw you. When you were not uh, desiring him, he desired you. When you was walking on your way, thinking everything was okay, and you had the world by the, by the tail, so to speak, it took God Almighty to bring you down to the dust of the earth. It took him to show you that you are a poor, vile, unworthy sinner here in this world, saying they need of, of the grace and mercy of God. Is that your experience? 
Saul of Tarsus, that fire-breathing dragon. Well, he's not breathing so much fire right now, is he? <laughs> the men with him had to lead him down there. But while they lead him down there, God's got somebody who's going to talk to him when he gets there. He's going to preach to him called Ananias. Called Ananias. Now, Ananias was an unknown preacher. Why in the world would God use Ananias? You know, we come to Saul, and Ananias was somewhat skeptical like this when the Lord's telling him, see, God's working both ends of the line right here. See, see how different these two men are, by the way. Here comes a man, a descendant of Cush uh, down here, and he comes from uh, Ethiopia, travels over 200 miles to Jerusalem to worship, and Saul of Tarsus leads Jerusalem here with a mindset of, of persecuting God's people, and he's going to go to the city of Damascus way over here. They don't know each other, never met each other. They got a few things in common, but a lot of things they don't have in common. But one thing they do have in common, both of them had an experience of grace exactly the same way. I, the eunuchs is not described to us. It doesn't have to be, I got Saul's here to go by. And he's a pattern. So they're leading him to Damascus. The Lord's working out on us. And I say, I've heard a lot about this man. And the Lord says unto him, he says, he's a chosen vessel unto me, Ananias, and behold, he prayeth. Here's two things, Ananias, that tell you he's my child. I know you've heard of Saul of Tarsus. I know you understand he's a fire-breathing dragon. I know you understand how he has done all these mean and awful things uh, to my people and persecuting me by persecuting my children. I understand all that, but I want you to understand he's a chosen vessel unto me. And behold, now he prayeth. He's not the same. Those two encouragements we find where Saul met, uh, Ananias met Saul of Tarsus, exactly where the Lord told him to go. He said, you go into a, straight call, a street called Straight, and there you'll meet him. And when he got there, he put his hand out and he called him Brother Saul. Called him Brother Saul. <laughs> and he says, the Lord has sent me. Now, why was Ananias there? Because he was sent of God. God's always got the perfect man for the perfect job in the perfect place. We'll see this again just a little bit later. God sent me that you might have your sight. And the Bible says it fell from his eyes and had been scales. This man who hadn't seen anything for three days, now he can see. He's got two different types of sight now. He now he's got his natural eyesight back, but now he's got spiritual eyesight. And the Bible says that Ananias baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't delay it, didn't put it, put it aside for a while. I love to see God's people eager beavers when it comes to things like that. <laughs> you know, when, when they see that they uh, uh, are just uh, not worthy of the grace of God, but yet they feel like if they're not deceived in their experience, they belong to God and Jesus Christ died for their sin and delivered them. And one day they'll be with the Lord in glory. Why would you not want to be baptized in his name? Why would you not want to deny yourself, take up your cross, make a profession of faith, and go down beneath that water, my friends, to rise to walk in newness of life? to show publicly that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he's your Lord and he's your Savior. You know, people have their bucket list. <laughs> and it's amazing what's on people's bucket list. I want to go to Australia. I want to circle the world. I want to do this. I want to do that. One thing and another. And yet they never have done the most important things in life. 
And I think I mentioned this to you not too long ago, but they asked one man what, what was on his first thing on his bucket list. He said, my first thing on my bucket list, I don't kick the bucket. <laughs> well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid you're going to experience that somewhere down the road. <laughs> the bucket's going to be kicked, okay? His sight's given back to him. He's been baptized. And now, what does he do when he gets to Damascus? Instead of going there to pray, P-R-E-Y, he now, he goes there, P-R-A-Y. He went from a praying man to a praying man. And who made the difference? The Lord Jesus Christ made the difference. Him and himself and him alone. Nobody else. We see he's a pattern of all long-suffering, my friends, uh, of how God deals with his children here. His experience is given to us and is repeated two more times in the book of Acts, Acts 22 and Acts 26. Let's move to chapter 10 just for a moment. We're going to look at a Gentile. He's a, he's a descendant of Japheth. His name is Cornelius. And there are six strong evidences that Cornelius was a born-again child of God before he ever saw the face of a man named Peter. It opens up telling us he was a man who feared God with all of his house. That he prayed to God always. He gave alms to the people, a charitable, generous man. And he was a devout man, which means to be pious and devoted and godly. A little bit later on, you're going to find where some men are telling the apostle Peter, three men, two of them are servants, one's a soldier, that, Peter, that uh, Cornelius is going to send to where Peter's at. And they're going to tell Peter that the man that we've come to represent is a just man, that's number five, and has good report among all the people, that's number six. Six things said about this man that shows all the, all the evidence you'd ever want to see about anybody, that they've been born of the Spirit of God. He's never heard the gospel. He's a Gentile. The gospel hadn't reached the Gentiles yet until right now. And an angel comes to the apostle Peter and says, Peter, excuse me, unto um, Cornelius. He said, Cornelius... Thy prayers have come up for a memorial before me. And what does that mean? That simply means I'm about to answer your prayer, Cornelius. Cornelius is a praying man. The unregenerate people never pray to anybody. The unregenerate, my friends, have no desire to communicate with heaven, no desire to communicate with God. They're unholy, they're unthankful, unappreciative, etc., etc. This man's praying. And the angel says, your prayers, plural, have come up for memorial before me. He said, I want you to send three men over to Joppa. Now you're going to find <clears throat> Joppa is, a, is about 30 miles away. There's your two-day journey I was speaking of earlier. It's going to take those three men about two days to get there. It's going to take Peter about two days to get back. But those three men, two of them are servants and one is a soldier, that Cornelius sends to Joppa, to where Peter is at. And what's, what's Peter doing? Peter, it's noontime. Peter's hungry. He's on top of the rooftop praying. It's noontime. He's hungry. And God sends a sheep down here, knitting four corners with all manner of four-footed beasts of, of, of the field, fowls of the air, and creeping things of the earth. They're all, all unclean. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would he send for Peter two days away when Philip is already there. Philip is in uh, where Cornelius is at, in Caesarea. That's where he's at. 
He's the one who preached to the eunuch. He's already there. So why send for Peter? Because he's the Lord. <laughs> he's the Lord. That's number one. But number two, Peter had been an Orthodox Jew all his life. He knew the two categories of clean and unclean animals. And the Jewish people looked at the Gentiles as the unclean animals. They looked at themselves as the clean. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to teach Peter a lesson. He's going to teach Peter there's none clean in my sight, Jew or Gentile. These are all unclean. And Peter says, he says to Peter, rise, slay, and eat, Peter. You know what Peter says? Peter says, not so, Lord. Peter, Peter had some brass about him, didn't he? <laughs> Remember when the, when the Lord told Peter he was going to be arrested and taken, be crucified and slain? And Peter said, not so, Lord. Now listen, it's okay to use the word no. I wish parents understood that. I wish parents understood the importance of the two-letter word no when it comes to their children. And it's okay to say the word Lord, right? But it's never appropriate to say no, Lord. You never put those two words together. Never appropriate to say no, Lord. No over here, okay. Lord over here, okay. No, Lord, not okay. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything uncommon, unclean. I'm an Orthodox Jew. I have towed the line. I've walked the straight and narrow when it comes to that. And he had, I'm sure. The Lord said, Peter, don't you call anything common and unclean that I have cleansed. All these unclean beasts and everything else you see right here, he says, the cleansing of them is in my hand. I do the cleansing. Don't you call any of them unclean that I have cleansed. And while he's pondering this, and that sheet came down three times, while he's pondering this, there's a knock on the door, and there's three messengers. He lets them in. The messengers tell them what their mission is. We're going to find where Peter listens, Peter receives them, he lodges them, and the next day they take off on a two-day journey down there to where Cornelius is at. And when Cornelius gets there, he finds a model church. Let me say this, a model congregation. Because while all this is taking place, you know what Cornelius is doing? He's so interested in this meeting he's going to have with Peter that he wants other people in on it. So he's gathered his kinsmen and his near friends together. I don't know how many, but I, I, I'm going to assume he's got a pretty good little congregation here. Why would he be so interested? That's the kind of man he was. He was anticipating something good, something wonderful, a great blessing. He wanted his kinsmen, his family to know about it, and he wanted his near friends. He had friends. The Bible says if a man has friends, let him show himself to be friendly. He must have been a friendly fellow. He's got near friends, and he contacts them, and they come, they respond. They must have had a great respect for him. So when Peter gets there, the Bible says that Peter, uh, Cornelius said, we are all here, and we are ready to hear what God has for you to tell us. Peter had a model congregation. Everybody showed up for worship. <laughs> oh, one of these days it's going to happen. I, Jack, I can just tell it. One of these days it's going to happen. I'm going to get up here and look out and I'm going to say, here's nobody met. I, I keep having hope for that. I keep hope holding out for that. <laughs> it's just got to happen. 
You think it happened accidentally every once in a while. They were all there. And they were all there for the right reason. To hear the word of God. And they all listened. And you're going to see, they all obeyed. Now what preacher wouldn't give his right arm for a congregation like that? <laughs> what more could a preacher ask for? Everybody showed up. Everybody was interested. Everybody listened. And everybody obeyed. Wow. <laughs> That's what Peter had here. And Peter give a summary of the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he got through while he was preaching, when he was just really getting going, he got interrupted. You know, you know who interrupted? The Lord did. The Holy Spirit interrupted what the Apostle Peter was saying. The Holy Ghost came down. This is parallel to the book of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when Peter, a Jewish apostle, preaching to a Jewish congregation about a Jewish Messiah. In Acts chapter 10, you got a Jewish apostle preaching to some Gentiles about a Jewish Messiah. And the Holy Ghost, when the day of Pentecost came down, as you read in Acts chapter 2, and you find here where the Holy Spirit came down upon these Gentile people right here. This is the Gentiles' little day of Pentecost, in other words. Peter got interrupted. You know, there was a time when God interrupted him on the mountain of transfiguration, too. When he took Peter, James, and John up there with him, there Moses and Elias showed up, you know, and Peter spoke up and said, we ought to be able three tabernacles, a voice from heaven rang out and interrupted Peter, said, uh, Peter, uh, you know, when he wanted to build those three tabernacles once again, he said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. He got interrupted. And later on in that chapter, you're going to find a conversation between the apostle Peter and some people who was wanting to collect taxes. And he comes back to the Lord. As he starts to tell the Lord about the meat, and the Lord interrupted him. I find where God the Father interrupted him, God the Son interrupted him, now the God and the Holy Spirit interrupted him. Now I'm going to tell you, I really wouldn't like the fact that someone interrupt me this morning while I'm trying to preach to you, but if the Lord wants to interrupt me, I'll just take my seat. If Jesus wants to interrupt me, I'll just take my seat. If the Holy Spirit wants to interrupt me, I'll just, I'll just take my seat. I have heard of a few times when the preacher was preaching and he was preaching on points of baptism. He said, you know, he's in the middle of his sermon. He said, if anybody wanted to join the church right now, I'll just stop. Somebody came down now, so he stopped. Now, I'll take that kind of interruption today and any day. Now, let's take a look at these three men. These three men, all were blessed to hear the gospel. These three men all, all together, I mean, every, all three of them, wanted to be baptized immediately, and they were. In the case of um, Cornelius, his, his household was also united uh, there with the church, and they were baptized. They came from three different descendants of Noah. The gospel has now reached, not only the Jew, it's reached the Gentile. It's reached people from all quarters of the earth, so to speak, at this point. These three men were all men of authority. That Cornelius was a centurion. He was a, a soldier who had charge over a hundred men, but he recognized there was one greater in authority than he. And Saul of Tarsus got the lesson too. I mentioned a while ago, I uh, uh, didn't finish it. Saul means dedicated one. Paul means little one. 
That's what the name Paul means. He went from the dedicated big roaring dragon to the small little apostle Paul that God used to do miraculous things in establishing churches all throughout the land, writing 14 to 27 books in the New Testament. In studying these three men, these three lessons, you will notice that Cornelius and the eunuch gave abundant evidence of being born in the Spirit of God before a gospel preacher ever came into their presence. Because the gospel preacher has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. The gospel is a proclamation. The gospel is a declaration. The gospel is a message, brethren, of good news and glad tidings that comes from the far country. The gospel tells you, even though you feel yourself, I trust that you do this morning, see yourself as a poor, vile, undone sinner. You would not feel that way if you didn't have a divine nature inside of you showing you've been born of the Spirit of God. And that divine nature has lit you up on the inside to show that you are indeed a sinner. You see what you are by nature, but thank God the gospel comes along and tells you what you are by the grace of God. God's mercy and God's grace. How are we going to live without them? Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You feel the need, my friends, of the grace of God. That's a wonderful feeling to have because, again, that shows you that you realize in your own self that you're weak and you're poor, like John Newton wrote. I love all the hymns that John Newton wrote. We sing seven or eight of them here, and each one has a special message to it. Well, of course, we're familiar with amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're familiar with that. But I like this hymn when he wrote, Poor, weak, and worthless, though I am, I have a, a rich, almighty friend. Hungry, faint, and poor, he said. You know, uh, uh, glorious things are spoken to thee, O Zion. You know, hymn after hymn, John Newton had a variety of my friends that described his experiences that he'd had with the Lord along life's journey. And I'm, I'm thankful for my experiences with the Lord along the way. And that journey has brought me into contact with so many of the Lord's people, so many precious ones and loving ones and friends that we have here this morning been blessed to meet. You know, I'll say this in closing. Uh, there in Acts chapter 8, after Philip got through preaching to the eunuch and he baptized him in the water, the Bible says that the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. That's the end result, brother, when you've got a biblical baptism under consideration, it takes place. The person being baptized goes on his way rejoicing. And what in the world did, did uh, Philip do? You'll find where he went to about four or five different places. He got back home. In other words, he preached his way back home. <laughs> I love that. He just preached his way all the way back home. That's what I, I want to do in my life. I just want to preach my way all the way back home, my friends, uh, wherever that home is. Oh, me. Well, I, I said I'd start my mom watch and stop on the slow one, so that's what I've done here this morning. So anyway, uh, so good to, to have your good attention this morning and your prayers. Thank you so much for them. Um, we will have a hymn here, Brother Junior. Okay, Brother Junior selected to a one that we're not too familiar with. It's called Amazing Grace. <laughs> hymn 154.